Well, we begin a new series this morning in the Psalms. We've actually spent the last two summers in the Psalms together, and this will be our third part and third summer together in looking at the Psalms. Of course, there are plenty of Psalms to look at, and we're not exhaustively studying through them, but we will enter into them again this summer. We begin this week with Psalm 120, which is the first Psalm of Ascents, and that's going to be our focus this summer, Psalms chapter, chapters 120 through 134, and I'll make a few more comments after I read the text this morning about the Psalms in general and specifically about the Psalms of Ascent, but we begin this morning with the reading of God's Word from Psalm 120. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and He answered me, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning, as I said, by making a few comments about the book of Psalms in general. Then I want to make a few more comments about this particular section of Psalms referred to as the Psalms of Ascent, which is going to be our focus for the summer. And then I will move into making some reflections on the particular psalm of the day, Psalm 120. But first of all, let's consider just what we need to think about with the psalms in general. The psalms are the hymn book of God's Old Testament people. It's a compilation of Hebrew poetry and wisdom literature that come to us by form of song. These were extremely familiar among God's Old Testament people. The psalms were also continued to be a great resource, particularly as it related to prayers and songs of people in the New Testament. We know, for example, that Jesus himself prayed the Psalms and used the Psalms. We need the Psalms in our lives, period, just as God's people always have. But I find myself personally right now really needing the Psalms because I find myself being what Ernest Hemingway said in The Old Man at the Sea, tired on the inside. I would imagine many of you feel that same way, tired on the inside. As we continue to traffic through this unique and unprecedented season, as we continue to try to figure out still what day of the week it is, and if it were not enough with all that has gone on with the pandemic, we continue now to traffic through this increasing uh, or becoming increasingly aware of the racial divide that exists in our country, all of these things, and then that's not even to mention specific and particular things in our own lives, the brokenness that we all have to deal with in the midst of this global and national brokenness, it seems that all of us are tired, tired on the inside. Well, the Psalms are a perfect place to go when we feel tired on the inside. They are things that draw us in through their lyric and through their music and through the beauty and through the poetry that they provide. I find myself needing, in the midst of being tired on the inside, 
to slow down because it's pretty unique. When we feel tired and stressed and anxious on the inside, oftentimes on the outside, we just busy ourselves even more. But what the Psalms call us to do is to slow down, to practice stillness, to move into meditation and contemplation. All of these things that we really deeply need because we're made for, yet all of these things which run against the... the, fabric of our culture. Our culture does not value meditation and solitude and stillness and contemplation, but the Psalms do, and they lead us towards this, and we need this. I love the quote by G.K. Chesterton that I've used in summers past when we have introduced the Psalms. G.K. Chesterton, the British writer and author, said, "'Poets don't go mad, but chess players do.'" To accept everything is an exercise. To understand everything is a strain, similar to Ecclesiastes. He goes on to say, The poet only desires exaltation and expansion, a world to stretch himself in. The poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It is the logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head, and it is his head that splits. Well, we need to accept the poetry that the poets have given us in the Psalms. We need to accept the mystery. We need to cultivate silence and contemplation and meditation. Why? Because we're tired on the inside. We need God to meet with us through these prayers. We need the beauty that is contained within them. We need the beauty, for example, that drew Bono, the lead singer of U2, to the Psalms. So much so that it drew him not only to the Psalms, But Bono, a few years ago, was drawn to a particular interpretation or a particular, I should say, translation of the Psalms by the late Eugene Peterson. Bono had become captivated by Eugene Peterson's translation of the Psalms in his translation entitled, The Message of the Bible. And so Bono reaches out to Eugene Peterson. I mentioned this last year, some of you might remember, and there's a beautiful video that you could find on the internet to be able to see this conversation. But Bonner reaches out to Eugene Peterson because he's so moved by the Psalms and their connection that they had and the love they had for the Psalms. And so when Bono's people reach out to Eugene Peterson and Eugene Peterson's people, the first thing Eugene Peterson says is, who is Bono? He had no idea who Bono was. And so then people proceed to explain to him who Bono was. And Eugene Peterson responded by saying, that's great, but I'm too busy. And then the response was, but it's Bono. And Eugene Peterson responded by saying, but it's Isaiah, because he was working on a study in Isaiah at the moment. Well, they worked through those things, and they eventually became friends. And that friendship is really chronicled in this video, and it's built around both of their love for the Psalms. Eugene Peterson says this about the Psalms, and then Bono resonates with this in their conversation with each other. I got started translating the Psalms. To try to get them to realize praying wasn't being nice before God, Peterson says. The songs are not pretty. These songs are not nice, but they're honest. I think we're trying for honesty, which is very, very hard in our culture. We need honesty, and the Psalms help us to become more honest. And then Bono goes on to talk about non-Christians being suspicious of Christians because Christians, from their perspective, lack realism. 
Well, that's sad, but true in our culture, but it's untrue if we actually read the Scriptures. The Scriptures, like the Psalms, present Christianity as something that is very honest, something that is very real, something that is made for people who are tired on the inside, something that is made for people who need to sing to God, something that is made for people that need to pray to God but might not know what to pray. We could simply pray the Psalms. So that's a comment about the Psalms in general. Now I want to move into a few comments about the Psalms of Ascent. As I already mentioned, the Psalms of Ascent are contained within the Psalter in chapters 120 through 134. There are 15 Psalms of Ascent. And these Psalms of Ascent were written and sung on a particular and special occasions as God's people moved towards different festivals in their religious life together. As they moved towards Jerusalem God's people sung these songs as they moved towards Jerusalem on the road. Some people call the Psalms of Ascent songs for the road, songs for the journey, songs for a pilgrimage. It reminds me of how many of us, even to this day, continue to create what I would call a road trip mix. Now, I was born in 1974. And so when I was born, cassette tapes were just starting to move into mainstream culture. I actually still remember driving in the station wagon with my parents in the third row, back when the third row faced backwards, not forwards, listening to eight tracks of things like the Oak Ridge Boys. But then as I grew a little bit older, cassette tapes started to become more mainstream. And by the time I actually cared about music in middle school and then definitely in high school, it was all about making what we called mixtapes. I can still remember pulling blank mixtapes out of the wrapper that I had bought at Walmart or whatever and then recording the songs um, from other tapes onto that tape and creating the artwork, writing all the titles of the song for a road trip. It was always fun to make a mix for a road trip and then in the latter part of college and then definitely into post-college for me, you were able to start to make mix CDs, which that was the dawning of a new day, and pretty amazing that you could do that. Of course, all of these things these days sound archaic because of how music, music has become digitalized, but the point is we all have playlists for the road. Even now, I'm sure many of you have particular Spotify playlist or whatever device of music you use that are mixes for the road. Well, this was a road trip mixtape for God's people in Psalm chapter 120 through 134 that was entitled the Psalms of Ascent. They were called the Psalms of Ascent because God's people were ascending. They were climbing literally, but also metaphorically to meet with God in Jerusalem. It reminds us of the text from Isaiah chapter 2 verse 3. Come, let us climb God's mountain to the house of Jacob. He will show us the way he works, so we live in the way that we were made. I'll repeat that again. It's a great verse and a great translation. Come, let us climb God's mountain to the house of Jacob. That's what the, Psalm, that's what the Israelites were doing in the Psalms of Ascent. They were climbing to Jerusalem on these occasions of these festivals and singing these songs together. Come, let us climb God's mountain to the house of Jacob. He'll show us the way he works so that we can live in the way that we were made. Ascending means to be going up. One of the things that I'm missing this summer, along with many other sporting events, is one of my favorite annual sporting events, which is the Tour de France. I love 
cycling. It's a, my you know, favorite personal hobby. And then I love watching the Tour de France. Enjoyed just a few weeks ago watching the two-part series uh, on ESPN's 30 for 30, Lance Armstrong. Not sure how many of you had seen that. But there's a number of things that go into cycling, especially in these grand tours like the Tour de France. But when it comes down to it, the winner of the Tour de France, the one that's going to possess the yellow jersey, which is the winner's jersey in Paris on the last day, is going to be one who can ascend. Going to be one who can ascend these iconic climbs like Alpe d'Huez or Mont Ventoux. These are the mountains throughout the Alps that people must ascend in order to win the Tour de France. Well, this idea of ascending is a good picture for discipleship. Walking with Christ is about climbing. It's about ascending and descending. Discipleship is about walking with God to meet with Him. And the Psalms of Ascent are about a journey that God's people in the Old Testament took, a pilgrimage on the road as they went to celebrate different festivals, as they sang these songs, as they recited these poems, not individually, but collectively. That's another thing we need to remember about the Psalms. I'm afraid at times we read our Western or American worldview into the Psalms and we think as if the Psalms are primarily David's private journal. And that's not what they were at the time and that's not what they're intended to be at all. These Psalms are inherently communal, inherently collective. Well, we return now to Psalm 120, and this is where I want to make a few brief reflections on Psalm 120. Some simple reflections. That's one of the things that I love about the Psalms. The Psalms are pretty simple expressions, simple feelings that a particular psalmist has that are collective feelings that people then share together. So as we look at Psalm 120, the main thing that I want us to see in Psalm 120 this morning is the psalmist has a longing. He has a longing for peace and for truth. Psalm 120 is about the psalmist longing for peace and truth. This longing for peace and truth is created within the existence of his life in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. He longs for peace, but he lives in the midst of war. Does that sound familiar to us as well? We long for peace and truth, but we live in the midst of tension because we live in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. People across the world, to the tune of over 110,000 now, are not supposed to die from a virus. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Policemen are not supposed to use force and abuse authority on other people. There's not supposed to be inequality between black and white or any ethnicity or race throughout the country, throughout the world and throughout our country. These are things that are not the way they're supposed to be. We're supposed to live for and we long for peace and for truth. And the psalmist in Psalm 120 longs for peace and for truth. But he doesn't have it. Therefore, he lives in tension. He lives in groaning. He lives in yearning. And so do we. That's the whole idea of being tired on the inside. We're tired on the inside because we live in tension. We live in yearning. We live in groaning. Because things are not the way they're supposed to be, but we long for them to be the way they're supposed to be. We long for peace and truth, but we have to live in a world that's full of lies and wickedness and brokenness. Yet the psalmist here gives us a pathway 
In the midst of his longing for peace and truth, he turns to God. And it might sound simple, but I wonder how often in the midst of us feeling yearning and longing and growing, groaning, in the midst of our anxiety, in the midst of our depression, in the midst of us being tired on the inside, it seems that we might be quick to express these things to other people. We might be quick to hear what other people through various social media platforms want to say. But how often, even for us who are Christians, how often do we first and foremost take our longings and our yearnings and our brokenness and our tiredness to God? It sounds simple. It's so simple that it becomes, unfortunately, forgotten. Why would the psalmist want to first and foremost take his longing for peace and for truth to God? For three reasons I can see really simply here. The psalmist takes his longing for peace and truth to God because God hears, because God defends, and because God provides. God hears. That's something simple in this text that we need to look at first and foremost. The psalmist describes his state at the moment as being one of distress. He is distressed. He's groaning. He's longing. He's yearning. He's hurting. And therefore, he turns to God because he believes God to hear him. It's interesting that this set of psalms, which are really about celebration in many ways, does not begin with a psalm of celebration. But it begins with a psalm that at least has in part some lament in it. It would be important for us to ask, what is the cause of the psalmist's distress in Psalm 120? Well, the psalm lays it out. Pretty clearly, he is distressed because he's living amongst those who have lying lips and deceitful tongues. He's living among those who have lying lips and deceitful tongues. Eugene Peterson, in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which is something that I will quote throughout this series this summer. It's specifically geared towards the Psalms of Ascent. Eugene Peterson, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which is a great summary of what Christian discipleship is, speaks about the world of lies that we live in that would be not dissimilar to the world of lies that the psalmist was living in. And you can see this quote on the screen as well. The psalmist says, rescue me, or we say, rescue me from the lies of advertisers who claim to know what I need and desire, from the lies of entertainers who promise a cheap way to joy, from the lies of politicians who who pretend to instruct me in power and morality, from the lies of psychologists who offer to shape my behavior and my morals so that I will live long, happy, and successfully, from the lies of religionists who, quote, heal the wounds of this people lightly, from the lies of moralists who pretend to promote me in the office of captain of my fate, from the lies of pastors who, quote, get rid of God's command so you won't be inconvenienced in the following religious fashions. Rescue me from the person who tells me of life and omits Christ, who is wise in the ways of the world and ignores the movement of the Spirit. Rescue us from this. Well, the psalmist is asking to be rescued from these lies. He's also in distress because he says he lives among those who hate peace And are for war. He's homesick. 
He's living amongst a pagan people who hate peace and are for war. He gives two geographical references here, Meshach and Kedar. These places are nowhere near each other, and most commentators believe he, mention, believes he mentions these geographical references as metaphors for the hedonism and the paganism that he was seeking to live his life in the midst of. Verse 6, the psalmist says, Too long have I had my dwelling place among those who hate peace. Too long have I had my dwelling place among those who hate peace. He knows he's not made to live amongst people who hate peace. He knows that he was created to live in an environment where shalom was present. Universal flourishing, peace, a Hebrew concept that is so beautiful. But he wasn't feeling that, and as a result of that, he was homesick. It reminds me of Bob Dylan's iconic song, Like a Rolling Stone. You might have seen it in the silent reflection this morning. Dylan writes, how does it feel? How does it feel? To be without a home like a complete unknown, like a rolling stone. Speaking of Rolling Stone, Rolling Stone, the magazine, has called this the single greatest song ever recorded or written. It's a powerful song that people connect with. No matter what your genre of music is, there's something about the way this song sounds and the way this song speaks And the way this song calls to our hearts to be without a home, to be a complete unknown like a rolling stone. The psalmist seems to resonate with this exact feeling. Bruce Springsteen, the boss, when he was inducting Bob Dylan into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 85 or 1988, I'm sorry, says this about this particular song, and it's amazing. That snare, the boss says, the snare drum, that snare... Shot, I'm sorry, that snare shot sounded like somebody kicked open the door to your mind. The snare shot and like a rolling stone sounded like someone kicked open the door to your mind. Bruce Springsteen goes on to say, I heard this song at first when I was 15. I heard a guy who had the guts to take on the whole world and who made me feel like I had to do it too. He was bold enough to say that he had no direction and that he was longing for home. And then he asked the question, how does it feel? And the psalmist would say, it feels like being homesick to live amongst people who hate peace and want war. I wonder right now how it feels to be a black American. Obviously, I don't know. And I say this question with as much sensitivity as I can muster within my heart, genuinely asking. But I want to know. I had the privilege this past week through a member in our church who really embodies who we want to be as a church, who really embodies mission in a way that is deeply moving to me. He asked me to come and grab drinks with a handful of white guys and a handful of black guys in our city who all love Knoxville, but who need to talk about the racial divide that exists even in our city. And so I had the privilege of sitting there amongst three African Americans whom I did not know, one of them actually who was a Muslim, just to add a greater divide and disconnect at this table and get to hear them express how it feels to live in a world where they seemingly people hate peace 
and are seeking to wage war. Well, it feels like being homesick. It feels like being in a place that's not the way it's supposed to be. And you don't have to have the experience of that racial divide to experience the lack of feeling at home in this world. When you stand for truth and you stand for justice, when you say today in our world, for example, that you believe the Bible to be God's word and that that's the primary driver in your life, it's very easy to make that statement and then to feel homesick. There's a number of different things in our life and in our world today that cause us to feel homesick. So he's in distress because he lives in a culture of lies, and he's in distress because he lives in a place where he feels homesick. Yet something that's very interesting here is he also not only feels distressed, but he feels thankful. And what I think is important to know is he is thankful simply because he can pray to God. He is thankful simply because he believes God hears his prayer. There's no indication that God has transformed his circumstances or his situation. I wonder how often, for example, we can express thankfulness even when a situation remains unresolved. There's no indication that the psalmist has that which distresses him resolved in this psalm, yet he tells us from the very beginning that he's thankful. That's why this psalm is only partly a lament. It's also partly a psalm of thanksgiving. And he is thankful, not because his situation has been transformed or changed or the circumstances are different. He is thankful simply because he has an avenue to express his distress. He is thankful simply because he believes that God hears his prayer. Well, by way of application, before we move on to not only God hearing, but God also defending us, as we long for peace and for truth, simple question would be, do we call to God in our distress? I hear us talk about our distress. Often you see people expressing distress, you know, on social media channels. But the question would be, do we actually call to God in the midst of our distress? God can't give us a thumbs up. God can't like our distress like a post on social media could which gives us a sense of affirmation of being heard. But God can do much more. He can actually work to change our hearts, first and foremost. But He also can change circumstances, which He does. Do you call to God in the midst of your distress? Are you confident that your prayers will be heard? And then lastly, by way of application, not only do we live in a world of lies, we have to take ownership and confess that we perpetuate lies as well. We speak words that are not truthful. We speak words of gossip and slander. We backstab people. Actually, the things that God says that he hates the most among Christians. We don't only live in a culture, a world at large that perpetuates lies, slander, and gossip. Unfortunately, within the church, lies, slander, and gossip are just as prevalent and therefore in some ways more insidious than they are in the culture at large. We must stop perpetuating the lies that the culture is telling. We must quit bringing the lies and the slander and the gossip and the backstabbing into the church. It's what will fracture the community. It's one among many reasons that the church is fractured today throughout the world. The church within itself does not love each other. One pastor says it like this, most who have spent time as a member of the church community uh, a community on pilgrim, pilgrimage to heaven, know the reality of this song, this psalm. They know that the church is a mixed community. 
that scattered among the saints are liars, gossipers, slanderers, and sociopaths who smile in your face but attack you behind your back. Not only do we have to live in a world that perpetuates these things, unfortunately, we live in churches that perpetuate these things. James speaks very harshly but very poignantly in chapter 3 where he talks about the power of a tongue. Unfortunately, we could testify to ways in which people's tongues through gossip and slander have destroyed us. Some people's tongues have destroyed lives. People's tongues and gossip and slander have literally destroyed churches. So as we long for peace and truth in the world, living in the midst of a world that is full of lies and lacks peace, may, us che- may we check ourselves that we're not perpetuating that same thing in the world and even in our own communities. So the psalmist is longing for peace and truth. And as a result of that, he knows that God hears, but he also knows that God defends. We see this in verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 120. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. It's talking about charcoal right there. And this can be a little bit perplexing. This is where some of the poetry of the Psalms requires us actually to be still and to contemplate and meditate because it's not so obvious or clear. This, the Psalms don't provide us like the heavy bold print method where we can just see like the main concept and not read the actual paragraphs. Poetry makes us enter into its artistry to try to figure out what's going on. And what our best understanding of what's going on right here is the psalmist is appealing to the fact that God is a God who defends his people. In the midst of living in an unjust world, we find our hope in the fact that God will bring justice truly right now, and then one day, fully. And this is what our real hope is. Our real hope is not in us being able to enact appropriate justice. Of course, we need to be proponents of justice, and we need to see and seek the justice that can be provided through the different means that exist in our lives and in our worlds and in our communities. But ultimately, our greatest hope is not in political justice, not in societal justice, Not in justice that any human being can institute, but our greatest hope is in the fact that God can bring justice. Because God has what we would call a righteous indignation and anger. And this is where it's a little bit of a rub, because while we want justice to be brought, we also have an extremely difficult time with the wrath of God. But I simply want to say, without the righteous anger and wrath of God, there will be no justice. There will not be justice unless God deals in righteous anger and in wrath against injustice. And in fact, one of the reasons that we need to leave justice to God and let vengeance be His is that if we seek to bring vengeance and justice, we actually will not do it harsh enough. The punishment that we seek to institute will not fit the crime because we're human. But God, who is holy and perfect, actually can bring about and institute justice in His vengeance that will make all things right. And so in the midst of us longing for peace and for truth, we must realize we must do what we can to institute that, but ultimately, we must find hope in the fact that it's not, us to defend, it's not up to us to defend ourselves. Ultimately, it's up to God to defend us. 
from others, and ultimately in eternity. Romans 12 says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And of course, Jesus himself modeled this for us. As Jesus himself lived amongst those who were, who were at war. Jesus lived amongst those who had deceitful tongues and were liars. Jesus modeled this kind of of trusting God to defend him. Even as he sat there before Pontius Pilate, as he was crucified on the cross, Jesus appealed not to himself. Jesus did not come to his own defense. It's actually something that I've always had a hard time with. Even as a kid, I remember sitting in Sunday school, watching Jesus mocked on the, or hearing about Jesus mocked on the cross and being able, just not being able to understand why he did not rip himself down and start clearing house. Repaying evil for evil. And he actually would have been justified in doing it, so it wasn't even evil. But Jesus sits there and never says a mumbling word, as the African-American spiritual song says. It says, they crucified him, they nailed him to a tree, they pierced him. The blood came trickling down, he hung his head and died, and he never said a mumbling word. Why? Because he, like the psalmist, believed that ultimately God is his defense. So we can find peace and truth in the midst of this warring world because God hears, because God defends, and then lastly, because God provides. God provides for us in the midst of the tension that we live in. First and foremost, God provides simply his presence. We can find comfort in God's presence in the midst of living in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. Furthermore, God provides grace And grace empowers us. You see, grace is not only God's forgiveness and His mercy towards us, His unmerited favor in Christ, but grace is also an empowerment for us to be able to make declarations like the psalmist makes here and say things like, I am for peace. The only way the psalmist, who's a broken person just like me and you, can declare in the midst of a warring world that he is for peace is because God has provided His grace. God not only provides His presence, but God provides His power of grace for us to be able to make a statement and a stand that we are for peace. But then lastly, the thing that God provides is His Son. And this is what's beautiful to see the Christ-centeredness once again here in this. Not only did Jesus model for us what it looks like to leave justice to God, not only did Jesus model for us to not do evil, when evil is being done against. Not only did Jesus model for us by keeping his mouth shut amidst liars and gossipers and slanderers and those who had deceitful tongues, Jesus modeled an amazing discipleship and behavior for us. But Jesus is not only our model of this. Jesus is also our Savior. You see, Jesus becomes our defender. Because the truth about God is he's holy. And as I said earlier, God has a righteous wrath that must be manifested. If not, then he's not righteous. God cannot let evil go unpunished. And that gives us a big problem because we, even in the midst of living in an evil world, are evil. 
And so God not only provides his presence, not only provides his grace, but God provides his son as our defender to receive the wrath and the judgment that we deserve. You see, he's not only a model, he's a savior. And because Christ has received the wrath and the judgment, because Christ is our defender, ultimately before God, we don't have to live lives that are defensive. We get to live in freedom. We're no longer struggling to be free, but we're free to struggle in the midst of this world where we long for peace and we long for truth, even though it's not the way it's supposed to be. Our great hope is that Christ is our defender. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the Psalms. We need them because we're tired. We're tired on the inside and we need to slow down. We need to connect with you. And thank you that you've given us the opportunity to do so through this book and through this Psalm today. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.